Garfield's life and eventually his presidency was a very good look at what it is like when you have a pathologically reasonable person in power in Washington. Uh, <laughs> you have to define was, what that means, Charlie. Yes, yes. He, he, he was somebody who took great pride in being uh, an unpopular post-partisan person in many ways. When I say post-partisan, he was a loyal Republican, but he was somebody who uniquely for his time did not really believe in adversarial personal politics. Um, he didn't really believe also in confining himself to a certain position on a certain issue. And you can obviously see that his evolution over the course of his career, he was there at the beginning of Reconstruction as a radical Republican. And then you fast forward, you know, a decade and a half, and he's this great compromiser. Uh, he, he also didn't believe in being nasty with political opponents. He said, somewhat famously, I just never feel that to slap a man in the face is any real gain to the truth. That was Charles Goodyear talking about James Garfield, the often overlooked man who was elected in 1880 as the 20th president of the United States. I'm Mark Updegrove. And I'm Mark Lawrence. And this is With the Bark Off. C.W. Goodyear is a writer and historian based in Washington, D.C. Earlier this year, he published his first book, President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier, which has earned effusive praise for meticulous research and eloquent writing about a president who's often flown under the radar. Goodyear shines a light on James Garfield's presidency, but also dwells on his earlier career as a teacher, Ohio politician, union general during the Civil War, and ultimately powerful member of the U.S. House of Representatives, where Garfield participated in many of the most contentious debates of the period after the Civil War. Mark, if there's one thing that people know about President Garfield, it's the fact that he was assassinated just a few months after taking office as the nation's 20th president. But it turns out, perhaps unsurprisingly, Uh, for a man who, after all, rose to the rank of president of the United States, that he is a fascinating individual who had a long and quite distinguished career before being elected in 1880. Frankly, Garfield is is one of those presidents, Mark, that I didn't know a lot about. He was the second president in U.S. history to get uh, assassinated, the first being, of course, Abraham Lincoln. But James Garfield turns out to be a pretty interesting character. And it seems to me, Mark, that Charles Goodyear really digs into the, the, the life of Garfield to tell us why he is somebody of substance and, and consequence in American history. He comes across to me as one of those people who has a knack for just being at the center of the action, no matter what the big issue of the moment was during the years of the Civil War and in the uh, controversial years of Reconstruction thereafter. He was, it seems to me, always at the, the center of, of, the, of the debate and therefore was a, um, a fascinating figure for simply understanding the period through which he lived, but also, of course, uh, someone who wielded a lot of influence in those debates. Exactly. And and here is our conversation with Charles Goodyear on James Garfield, who ends up being, as Mark suggests, more or less a uh, a post-Civil War zealot, somebody who is at the center of much of what was happening after the Civil War, including Reconstruction. Charlie Goodyear, thanks for being with us. Great to have you. Oh, thanks. It's my pleasure, Mark. So 
lots and lots of presidential biographies have been published over the years, obviously, but very few about James Garfield, who has to rank as one of the more obscure American presidents, beyond, I suppose, the fact that he was assassinated, which might be one of the facts that um, a, lot of, a lot of folks know. Uh, given all of this, how did you come to write about James Garfield? Yes, it was an indirect uh, journey to me finding him as a subject. I was, five years ago, I was working as a ghostwriter in D.C., uh, so I was writing with and for more important people. And as a product of where I was uh, geographically at that time, and I think where we all were and still to a certain extent are geo uh, politically, I was interested in finding a period of American history that was overrun by division, but where someone on the national level was trying to lead the country in a way that was uh, trying to resist that division, just to try to keep the, the basic gears of our government turning despite all of these inclement weather conditions, you might call them. And so I was drawn to Reconstruction in the Gilded Age, and I found James Garfield lurking in the background of most every major event throughout that time. Uh, and his record was, uh, I wouldn't say thin, but, it, it, but not a lot of people were really paying attention to him. Uh, it was, it was, and that's for quite natural reasons, to be honest. I'm not going to uh, undercut that logic. Uh, the way American historical memory works when it when it's related to our presidents is we often ask ourselves, what did this person do when they were president? And for James Garfield, that's a very short story, but by, by, by no fault of his own, I, I'd argue. But uh, he was this long-lasting political figure and a very important part of our history. And not only that, his distinctive characteristic to me was uh, of his time throughout this, you know, almost two decades of American legislative history, Garfield was discussed by by friends, by adversaries, by political rivals, all in the same tones. They all discussed him in a positive light, and that struck me as very strange. So those two things, his length of career and his, his, his bizarre, some would say pathological friendliness and open-mindedness and moderacy in an irrational partisan age, that just made me very interested in him. And, and just to highlight the point, uh, he was described even before his presidency as being one of the most accomplished and influential Americans of all time. And so the deeper I got into his life story, just the more compelling the portrait that emerged. And it's just been a blast to write about him. So many uh, presidents between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt are kind of lost to history, Charlie. Why are presidents like Rutherford B. Hayes, Garfield, <laughs> and Benjamin Harrison so obscure? I blame the beards. <laughs> it's ironic isn't it it's, it's, it's all these it's all of these uh these generally civil war veterans right up until mckinley who uh were uh more than more often than not from the midwest who were more often than not uh plagued by very short terms even grover cleveland had to break his two terms up into you know between harrison uh and uh, generally, you know, bearded in distinct ways, but they all blend into each other. Uh, the Gilded Age has been written of as this, like, this great, uh, this great lost, ambiguous period of American history. The, those presidents have been described as the lost presidents. Thomas Wolfe, um, you know, famous American writer, used to wonder if they even really existed at all. Um, and but I, I felt that's a very but but if you look at the just the, the 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 conditions of America in that time, you didn't really have an existential conflict. You had you had Western expansion and Indian wars, but that didn't really for some reason 
break most American social memories up. Uh, and you had a, a period defined by ambiguity. You had great economic progress, but you also had, you know, the rise of robber barons and this emergence of great socioeconomic disparity. You had political polarization, but it was often over issues that don't really mean much to modern Americans, like civil service reform, which sounds very boring, but it's actually a very compelling topic, I promise. Um, and you had uh, just this, this, this foggy transformative period of, you know, our past, um, more attention is being heaped on it now. And my book is only one part of that. But if you look at the conditions of America of that time, you could understand why for a while, very few people were paying attention to it. That is now changing. If you open uh, an editorial page these days in most major papers, you'll more often than not, I wouldn't say more often than not, I'd say you'll, you'll pretty often, you'll find somebody saying, did you know that we're in the second Gilded Age? And they think that that's a profound insight, but, but, it, but it's not. Uh, so, so focuses are returning to that period and we're finding, I think, a lot of undiscovered gems of that time that are newly relevant to modern Americans. Charlie, you do such a great job in the book of underscoring the point you were just making, right? This is a period that, though in some ways it feels very remote, is actually quite familiar when you start to look a little more carefully. It was an era of you know, bitter political divides, really nasty rivalries within parties as well as between them, charges of corruption. And that was something I learned from you. Even the, first, the, gov the nation's first government shutdown uh, occurred during this period. Well, what do we learn about our own times by looking back at, at James Garfield's career? Yeah, that's a good question. That the, the government shutdown, that was the first time that uh, a, a, a party had tried to use its control of the House to basically extort policy changed by control of the budget. It, it wasn't a shutdown as we understand it today right. because, you know, bureaucrats didn't stop going to work. That began really in the Reagan administration, mm -hmm. that, that type of shutdown. But it was the first time somebody had used that policies. Um, I would say it, it, what I found at the end of this long journey is that Garfield's career and the times that he witnessed and all of the experiences and uh, national events that he had a hand in managing, if not necessarily solving, uh, it's a reminder of two things. First is a lot of the things that modern day Americans call unprecedented when it's related to our politics, uh, events, uh, perceived crises, rhetoric about America and its, uh, its soul and its future. The, these actually aren't that unprecedented. The, you know, there's, there's one of the historical truths of, you know, our country is in many ways, at least when you look at its politics, there is to a certain extent, nothing new under the sun. Uh, and it's also like Mark Twain said, Mark Twain, by the way, being the origin of the phrase Gilded Age, he was the one who coined that term. You know, he also said, uh, you know, history doesn't repeat mm -hmm. itself, but it sure rhymes a lot. Um, you know, Garfield's time, you had that government shutdown. You had the first disputed presidential election in American history. And when I say that, what I mean is the first one where in the aftermath, one side claims fraud and then threatens civil war over the result. Uh, you had racial division, uh, political polarization. You're quite right within parties, particularly within the Republican Party. Um, that That's all terribly familiar for modern audiences. And I think in ways both reassuring and not, we can say, yes, this is to a certain extent happened before. The second thing that I found Garfield a very revelatory figure to study, at least as it relates to modern times, um, in a hyper-partisan age and in a rational age that was increasingly defined more by personalities, really, than policies, Garfield's life, 
uh, and his, eventually his presidency was a very good look at what it is like when you have a pathologically reasonable person in power. In Washington. Uh, he won. You have to define what that means, yes, Charlie. Yes, he, he was somebody who took great pride in being uh, an unpopular post-partisan person in many ways. When I say post-partisan, he was a loyal Republican, but he was somebody who uniquely for his time did not really believe in adversarial personal politics. Um, he didn't really believe also in confining himself to a certain position on a certain issue. And you can obviously see that his evolution over the course of his career, he was there at the beginning of Reconstruction as a radical Republican. And then you fast forward, you know, a decade and a half, and he's this great compromiser. Uh, he, he also didn't believe in being nasty with political opponents. He said somewhat famously, I just never feel that to slap a man in the face is any real gain to the truth. Uh, and his polit when he was faced with the political crisis and when there was splintering in his party and with between Republicans and Democrats, Garfield would always be a key broker of the deals that ended some of these standoffs and crises. Uh, and... But the result of what you get at the end, you have somebody who was a universally pleasant, happy, hardworking person who was personally popular throughout Washington, who was also, um, uh, I'd say, an accomplice to a lot of the gray politics of that era. He was more than happy to sustain and perpetuate the corrupt policies of his time. He was, uh, he believed in civil service reform. He believed in cleaning up the great machines that were corrupting American government of that time. But he also was not above, you know, giving uh, federal posts to his cronies. He wanted to meet the corrupt bosses of his party halfway rather than antagonize them like Rutherford Hayes did. Uh, he believed strenuously in civil rights enforcement, but he also believed that it would be politically foolish to try to relitigate reconstruction. He, you know, split hairs. And, and more, more importantly than that, in many ways, as it regarded him personally, uh, he, you know, accepted shares and, and financial favors that he really should not have. So, <laughs> you know, when, when you have somebody who defines their politics by compromise and just accepting people as they are and trying to give everybody at the table something to walk away from, you get somebody who is... Um, who has a complicated political legacy. So his, his life in many ways is a meditation on political pragmatism, I think. So how do you explain the evolution that you alluded to and, uh, and that is at the heart of your, your subtitle, which is Radical to Reformer? How do you explain that, that evolution? I explain it in two ways. First, he was always a... He, he was some from from a very young age. The Civil War disrupted this a little bit, but he was somebody who uh, was terribly afraid of not being liked with the people who were in his immediate circle. Um, there are stories of his childhood, and he grew up, you know, in a log cabin, and so education was this great boon to him. But when he when he was in the classroom, when he was in debating halls growing up, he was distinct in the way that he absolutely dominated these fields, but he was also just terribly afraid that the people he had just beaten would uh, dislike him afterwards. So he would often, after a debate, after coming first in his class, he would try very hard to then make up with the people that he had defeated. I think that personality trait is impossible to distinguish with what he became. But it, he also was somebody who had this intellectual uh, 
almost scientific approach to public policy. His move from a radical of the Civil War era, he believed in a thorough reconstruction of the South in not just the uh, immediate abolition of slavery, but the passage of civil and political equality of breaking up the great Southern plantations of exiling Confederates. He was fire and brimstone. But as those policies failed, and as radical Republicans started being punished at the voting booth for these policies, and as the Supreme Court started being an obstacle to the prosecution of Reconstruction, as the limitations of those policies became clear, Garfield started fishing around for new ideas. He had this, like, he had this scientific approach to like, okay, well, being a hardliner didn't work. What new solution could we have to this, this, this stubborn, persistent problem? And so he had this great line by the Johnson impeachment, actually. Andrew Johnson, not Lyndon. So, you know, for any listeners, let's, you, know, you have to diffuse that a little bit. Um, but he had this great line in the, during the Andrew Johnson impeachment where he's watching radicals just dash themselves against the rocks trying to get a political opponent out of the executive office. And Garfield writes from his front row view to the impeachment trials, I am trying to be a radical and not a fool which if I'm to judge by what's going on around me is incredibly difficult. He then goes on to write, by the way, that if the radical impeachment managers had a choice between shutting up and immediately winning their case or speaking and losing it, they would immediately launch into a six-hour sermon. So, 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 that, so, so he, 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 the, the, this, 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 this good-natured pragmatism emerges out of it. But there is this tortured soul in the middle of it. I've never read such profound meditations on the destiny of the Republic, as Garfield called it. He really believed wholeheartedly in the American experiment, and he, he believed in the need to reform our government, but he was very patient about it, and uh, I, I think in ways that are worth deep contemplation. Charlie, President Garfield's life is really something of a rags-to-riches story, right? The first parts of your book are largely concerned with pointing out um, what a rustic uh, place <laughs> and childhood he had. He was the, you know, the last president, as you point out, who lived in a log cabin. Um, he worked as a boat boy on the Ohio Canal. And yet, really, by, by the time he was in his 20s, he was very successful, not just in one line of work, but in multiple lines of work. He was a kind of teacher and school administrator. He was a lay preacher who was widely um, re respected. Um, how did he, how did he pull this off? How did he get from the you know the woods of the Western Reserve to this position of relative prominence at such a young age? Yeah, uh, so I was talking. You you'll never believe it. A few days ago, to another descendant of his, uh, they they've been very helpful throughout this process. And she was like, "I think he must have had ADHD." <laughs> 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 and that was that was a diagnosis. I you know I don't know if there would have been enough textual support, but. Um, First off, you need to start with a, just a remarkable intellect. This is somebody who uh, was, in his later life, he was a leading legislator of his time. He was also simultaneously a Supreme Court attorney, uh, and he was publishing articles in The Atlantic, and he also wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> like, this is somebody who was truly a Renaissance man in their, in their composition on the soul. Um, added to that was a volcanic ambition was somebody who, from the very he he started, I'd, I'd argue, as low as a northern white man could start in American society in his life. He was born in a log cabin, never knew his dad. His dad died when he was about two. Garfield wasn't even the first James Garfield in the family. He was named after a sibling who had died before he was born. 
Uh, and so by, by virtue of all of that, he had to spend his young years not studying, which was very natural for him. He had to be working manual labor jobs, and he was very bad at it. And he never really got over that, I don't think. He has this... So he ends up, you're right, by his late 20s, he is a preacher, college president, state senator all at the same time. You fast forward another year or so, and he is then the youngest brigadier general in the Union Army. Uh, this is, you know, this is somebody who's incredibly accomplished. But when he's a young brigadier general in Washington, he is encountering, as you do in Washington, a lot of young, ambitious people who are trying to network. And they're praising him. They're praising him as people would praise him throughout his life for coming from such a humble background and getting so far. That's the cruelty, I think, in many ways of our political system. We ask people to capitalize on their hardships in life. Mm-hmm. And he would go through that. And he would he wrote home as people were praising him for his hard scrabble background that he would tell people about. Uh, he wrote home uh, to his wife, let no man praise me because I was born poor. It was in every way bad for my life. And he would go on to write. He would go on to write to ask, almost hypothetically, he would ask, what more could I have done if I had been born to a father and some wealth? So he was not he was not telling himself, at least at that part of his life, like how well I've done all these wonder, you know, how, how far I've come. He was asking himself what more he could have done if he had had the same privileges so many other Americans take for granted. Uh, the way he died, he was, you know, he was assassinated and he became almost this Kennedy-esque figure, this JFK-esque figure uh, in American memory of that time. He was built into in popular memory as this fallen progressive champion who was taken from America too soon, who had never really, who had accomplished the American dream and never really asked for much in life. But that wasn't quite true in many ways. But one of the most important ways it wasn't true is he desperately wanted to improve his station. He, from the, from the time he was aware of his surroundings, he wanted to improve his circumstances and conquer the world around him. And he ended up successfully doing that. So he had a mix of just the elemental forces necessary to accomplish those things, but also, I'd argue more importantly, the drive. Hmm. So it really sounds like a Lincoln-esque background, Charlie. Yeah, and actually that was a comparison that was made by his presidential campaign. Rutherford Hayes wrote, you know, we we had, or actually it wasn't Rutherford Hayes, it was another Republican commentator, but they were saying, you know, a a few cycles ago we had Lincoln the rail splitter. Now we'll have Garfield the canal boy. (laughs) So so, (laughs) so they're like, ah, we can recycle that old imagery and like just see what we can do on the campaign trail. So Charlie, Garfield obviously had a distinguished, brief, but distinguished career as a union officer, and this helped to catapult him to his his political career. Um, and before long, he winds up in the U.S. House of Representatives. And of course, as you've already pointed out, that's principally where he would make his mark as an American politician. He was president only for a very short time because of the assassination. What were his biggest accomplishments as a member of the House of Representatives? Uh, well, he would always be very proud of his part. It was a bit part, but he, he was proud of his bit part in passing the Reconstruction Amendments, for one. Uh, he was very proud of his service in the realm of fiscal policy. He ended up very deliberately becoming the fiscal wunderkind of the House. He desperately wanted, and he realized partway through the Civil War, he had great foresight, but he realized how important financial policy and fiscal policy 
would be to uh, winning the peace that follows the Civil War and also to making a name for himself. So he chairs the appropriations committees for, or the appropriations committee for a long period of time. And he has this deft hand in trimming and cutting and trying to create a leaner federal government. Uh, he also was uh, in charge of the committee that investigated President Ulysses Grant for his role in the gold ring scandal. Uh, and Garfield would be proud of his role in, you know, he would argue clearing Grant's name. I think a more objective analysis would be it was a bit of a partisan piece of work. Uh, Garfield also founded the first federal department of education as a congressman. And he, and he was always incredibly proud of that. He viewed it as a reconstruction measure uh, because he would argue when you have all of a sudden this explosive growth in the number of American citizens, both as a product of what had just happened in the South through, you know, after the, uh, the ending of slavery, but then also in the North, when you have millions of immigrants pouring in from Europe that are arriving in the Northeast, Garfield would ask, you know, the house, he would say, are we to expand the bounds of citizenship and do nothing to increase the enlightenment of the citizen? So he ended up fighting pretty hard tooth and nail to, to create this new part of the federal government. And it was, it was to be a troubled creation, but he was always very proud of his solution in that. When it came to um, later times in Reconstruction, Garfield would be proud of his ability to solve crises. That was a big part of his uh, claim to fame. Uh, he ended up playing a key role in diluting the Enforcement Acts, the, also known as the Ku Klux Klan Acts of the Grant administration. Uh, he would argue that he altered those in a way that reduced their likelihood of violating you know, constitutional privilege by mm -hmm. people. But also um, during the election of 1876, uh, you know, that, that dark and you know, awfully timely moment of American history, Garfield played a key role behind the scenes in brokering the peaceful settlement of what threatened to be the second American Civil War. Uh, it's very, somebody wrote, actually James Blaine, another great figure of that time, wrote uh, when reviewing a collection of Garfield's speeches published after his death. He wrote of it as being an invaluable compendium of that explains the most important era through which the national government has ever passed. So legislatively, Garfield was one of the most experienced and capable uh, legislators of the 19th century in many ways. It's, it's, you can't really swing a cat in that, that, you know, that, that two decades following or decade and a half following the civil war where you can't really see his influence somewhere. But despite any distinction he might have achieved in the, in the house in 1880, he was a true dark horse, someone who wasn't much mentioned as a presidential candidate. And yet he got the nomination of his party. How did that come about, Charlie? He did. He did. And he was the utter definition of a dark horse. It came about because the Republican Party was so terribly factionalized by 1880. You had these vividly named blocks that absolutely hated each other. Um, you had in one corner, you had a group called the Stalwarts, who were devoted to President Ulysses Grant and who were also unrepentant Republicans. That's why they were called Stalwarts. And they fundamentally believed that the abuse of political power was necessary for the use of it. Um, they were uh, unabashed believers in the value of patronage, of distributing federal jobs to loyalists in order to secure support, of taking public money and putting it into private hands. They were uh, expert practitioners of that system. In another corner, you had the half-breeds, 
who were called that by Stowarts because the Stowarts didn't see them as real Republicans. And uh, so that sounds familiar. Uh, and then uh, the leader of the half-breeds was James Blaine, who was this divisive figure who I'd argue in the book, he was the, one of the first American politicians to run on charisma and little else. That was his defining trait. And then you had all of these independent reformists who were just trying to clean up government and remove the power structures that enabled both Stowarts and James Blaine to stay in power. Uh, these, these factions all had their declared candidates, but the, the expert Republican tea leaf, tea reader, tea leaf readers could see that even if any of these factions and their candidates won at the Republican convention of 1880, they would not win in the general election. So people were casting about in private around DC for somebody who would be palatable to all these factions and who might, who just might have a chance of beating Democrats in the fall. And the name they kept on landing on was James Garfield, minority leader of the house. He had really distinguished himself as that time as somebody who was above the factional fighting of that era, who could surpass it. This did not necessarily make him, uh, popular politically, I'd say, with these factions. They all said the same thing about him. They all said that James Garfield had no moral backbone because he was so inconsistent on the issues. He was so friendly, but he seemed so open-minded mm. and flexible. They saw that as cowardice. Garfield would argue that was actually strength. But anyway, so people start approaching Garfield in private ahead of the convention. And they say, you know, you're our, you're, you're, you're our man. You're a dark horse. You're the only person who can do this. And he was afraid of that idea for a lot of reasons. But here's the secret. Uh, there's no such thing as somebody in Washington who is not interested in the presidency. So, so Garfield shows up to the convention. He is the floor manager for one of these independent candidates. But he happens to do, throughout this week-long convention, he happens to perpetually be in the right place at the right time, saying the right thing behind closed doors and then in the convention arena to convince enough people that he would be a good unity t candidate. And so the voting happens, and uh, they're, they're round after round of disputed ballots. And then finally, on the 35th ballot, 20 votes go spontaneously to James Garfield. And he says the one thing that can both relieve his conscience and then convince people that he might be the right man. He stands up and he says, Mr. You know, Mr. Chairman, uh, no candidate can be voted on without their consent. And then he is, he is shut up on a technicality. The chairman rightfully points out that was not a point of order. But the chairman was also somebody who would later write, and uh, you know, I found him, he later wrote that he had arrived at the convention certain that only Garfield could unite the party. So his friends were everywhere, and they were in the perfect place to help him. Anyway, next round of voting, convention swings for Garfield. And he is, he is the proud owner now of a bitterly, bitterly divided party that had elected him in many ways to deliver it from those divisions. So he seals his doom in many ways with that decision. But it was a fascinating, I loved writing that chapter of the book because it was a fascinating bit of like gladiatorial combat slash kabuki theater and like, and, and doublespeak in many ways. And uh, I don't want to understate how afraid he was of the presidency. But he was open to it under the right circumstances. And those circumstances came about. Charlie, he obviously didn't have long to establish his place in presidential history. Um, tragically, of course, he was assassinated. But before we go to the assassination, tell us about his presidency. Was, were there accomplishments of note? Yes, there were. Uh, the, 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 some of the most accomplish, important accomplishments, I'd argue, were the way he tactfully used executive power. Uh, he 
in particular, he he tried to be very creative in how he used his appointment power to uh, benefit black Americans and black Republicans in particular. He appointed a lot of them to federal roles. He gave Frederick Douglass a job as recorder of deeds in Washington. <laughs> he gave Bruce Blanche, uh, you know, formerly the first uh, black senator, um, another job in the administration. And he viewed these as key ways of, I, I'd argue, inoculating the American public to the to the spectacle of non-white Americans in positions of federal authority. It's also a very good way of bypassing the uh, voting booth problem. Um, you can, you know, you can just, you can be very creative in how to use that. He also um, gave a lot of patronage to a unusual party in Virginia called the Readjuster Party which was neither Democrat nor Republican. And it was, ba it was, it was a mix of poor whites, former Confederates and, and, and black Americans. And they were devoted not to, you know, left versus right politics at that time. They were devoted to uh, poor versus rich politics. Uh, the, the readjusters were dedicated to the repudiation of public debt, to elimination of the poll tax. And uh, so they were headed by this Confederate general, but they had a lot of black voters. They were, they were called the most important uh, political uh, coalition of whites and blacks in the post-Reconstruction South, um, you know, between the end of Reconstruction and the Civil Rights era. But Garfield gave them a lot of patronage, and he, he viewed that as a way of opening possibly the room for further changes in the South. Um, he also ended up uh, enabling the foundation of the American chapter of the Red Cross, interestingly enough. But I'd argue most importantly, and this is actually what led to his assassination, he established the supremacy of the executive branch over the Senate. Uh, and he did so by getting into a fight. Now, whether he got into the fight or the fight was picked with him, matter of debate. But uh, he ended up getting into a fight with the Stalwart faction of the party, whose power base was in the Senate and who wanted control of these federal jobs. And when Garfield was not giving them the federal jobs they desired, the Stalwarts decided to go to war. And Garfield wrote on the eve of this contest, he wrote, well, finally, we are to have a settling decision on whether the president is the registering clerk of the Senate or the executive of the nation. <laughs> and so, and he ends up winning that fight. And so he settles that issue. Um, and then, tragically, that ends up leading to his shooting. So why does, uh, who is the assassin and, and what is his motive? Yes, the assassin is a stalwart sympathizer. So a member of that faction of the party who was mentally ill, admittedly, and who was terribly disappointed with his failure to get a job in the administration. And uh, as part of his attempts to buy Stalwart support, Garfield had given his vice presidency to a random Stalwart that no one really thought that highly of <laughs> named Chester Arthur. Chester Arthur, who had never been elected to anything in his life, he was elected to the vice presidency. He had, he had formerly been the customs collector of the Port of New York. Anyway, this, this stalwart sympathizing assassin decided that if he shot Garfield, uh, the, then the stalwarts would suddenly have control of the presidency. And their, the, the stalwarts' problems would be solved. And they would be so grateful to the assassin that they would give the assassin whatever role he wanted in, in, in the federal bureaucracy. And so he stalked Garfield. The, 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 the distance between regular people uh, on 
the street, regular citizens and political leaders in that time was very small. You could very easily stalk the president if you wanted to. And that's exactly what this assassin did. And it culminates in downtown D.C. on July 2nd. He follows Garfield and the Secretary of State, James Blaine, and Garfield's two sons. He, he ends up tracking them to a train station where Garfield's about to get on a train, and he shoots Garfield in the back. And he shout, and he doesn't shout, but he actually tells a police officer on the scene, the man who's arresting him, he says, I am a stalwart, and now Chester Arthur will be president. And Chester Arthur indeed became <laughs> president and would be president for far longer than James Garfield. He, he did. Uh, <laughs> now, how did... <laughs> yes, poor Chet, poor Chet. Honestly, honestly, right. poor, yeah, well, honestly, poor Chester Arthur, because <laughs> Chester Arthur was a sweet, sweet man. I, I, I know that doesn't right, sound like right. it because he was this member of this corrupt faction of the party, and he was one of its most yeah. infamous bosses. But as I write in the book, and as he was later remembered by other stalwarts, uh, he was really somebody who just <laughs> liked having a good time with the boys. He was actually a very you know, kind-hearted Man, who was not, I should say, not afraid of getting his hands dirty when it came to an election campaign. But he was somebody who just really wanted people to like him and he wanted to like other people. And that was his motivation. He had the Stowarts, the Stowart office holders, the senators, uh, uh, Arthur himself, um, they had no role in the assassination other than they had picked this fight with the president and they had said bad things about this president that had inspired this assassin to consider this plot. But uh, you can imagine the public outcry that followed and the, pers- the, the suspicions that fell on the vice president in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. What is James Garfield's most important contribution to the flow of American history? His most important contribution. Now, important is I'm going to be annoying here and I'm going to distinguish what we mean by important. Um, I think his... In terms of his the the length of his career and what he witnessed and his 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 writing and his his soul and his intellect and the way he applied that to these pressing public issues of his day and, and what he witnessed and how he chronicled them, he had some significant insights into the soul of America that I'd argue very few of our statesmen have ever surpassed. And that's what I loved writing about him. So if you want to say important as significant, just from a poetic standpoint, I'd point to that. In terms of how it's impacted our regular life. Garfield's death was ended up being ironically something that communalized his version of politics in American government for that time. He, For somebody of his age, of his accomplishments, and of his unique political style, his conciliatory nature, his good heart, his, his attempt to s- split the differences between the polarized politics of his time, uh, when he was shot, that ended up triggering a resurgence of public interest in his type of politics. It ended up being this inflection point and, and a temporary cure, I'd argue, for the nasty political rhetoric of that time. It was also used to end the politics of patronage in American government, or at least start curbing it. Is Not end, but start curbing it. Um, in the aftermath of Garfield's death, it was blamed, one, on stalwart rhetoric, so that faction of the of the Republican party was punished by voters, but two, it was used as a symbol of how the arbitrary awarding of bureaucratic posts in the U S government was really corrupting and ruining our Republic. And so it was, it was used as this inspiration for the Pendleton civil service act that Arthur signed. Um, And Garfield's death gave great political power to these key reform movements. It, uh, 
it's been estimated by civil service reform historians that his death accelerated the cause by 30 years. So the reason today that if you're a federal bureaucrat, you need to be executing your job independent of politics, that you need to take competitive examinations and interviews in order to get the job, that you're, that you're free from being forced to make a political donation in exchange for your job. All of those are due to Garfield's death. That was the, that was the, that was, that was the beginning of that movement and the yields that regular American citizens like you and I or, or our listeners uh, have reaped from that are untold. It's the reason that much of the business, just the day-to-day -day business of our interactions with government and the business of our government is depoliticized, that we have an apolitical civil service. It's because of Garfield's death. And I, I, I can't emphasize how important that is to uh, our nation as it is today. And uh, the, the amount of benefits we've yielded from that are literally incalculable, I'd argue. The book is President Garfield from Radical to uh, Unifier, and our guest has been Charlie Goodyear. Charlie, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Thank you, Charlie. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Lawrence. See you next time.